0: You're listening to WNHHLP, 103.5 FM New Haven, streaming live at
1: www.newhavenindependent.org and broadcasting live from our offices on Elm Street. This is another episode of Kika's Corner with Kika Matos. Thank you, Lucy. Mi gente, hello, and welcome to Kika's Corner. My name is Kika Matos, and I am your host. Pika's Corner airs once a month on the first Wednesday of every month. The goal for this show is to focus on interesting topics, fascinating people, social justice issues, and maybe a scandal or two. But always, 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 whatever we talk about will always have a New Haven edge. On the studio with me today is a badass lawyer who I had the pleasure of working with recently. Her name is Patricia Kane. If her name sounds familiar to you, it's because she's the lawyer who represented Corey Menefee, an African-American employee at Yale who was fired last June and charged with a felony for knocking down a glass pane depicting slaves picking cotton. Through Patricia's fine lawyering skills and the serious community organizing efforts that took place, this story has a happy ending, but one with an unfortunate twist that we will get to later. Today, we're going to talk about the uh, Corey Menifee's case, and we're also going to learn a little bit more about who Patricia is. Patricia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kika. So talk to us about how you became involved in the representation of Corey Menefee.
0: Well, basically, Wendy Hamilton, a local activist and philanthropist, read the first article published by the NHI and David Yaffe Bellany about Mr. Menifee's breaking a stained glass window at Yale, depicting a, a racist image, and his subsequent discharge from his employment and his arrest and charged with two criminal charges. And she contacted me to say, you must read this article. She's very much, um, Wendy's described herself as an angry black man in the body of an older white woman. <laughs> And uh, when I read it, I said, she said, do you think he needs a lawyer? And I said, do you want me to go to court and find out? So I went over to court, found him outside the public defender's office, and told him who I was and did he want an attorney, a private attorney as opposed to a public defender, and he was very eager to have his own attorney. So I basically knew him 15 minutes before we went into court. And when we came out of court, we were faced with this... Uh, outpouring of support from the community, from New Haven, meaning, uh, 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 let me get it right, Unidad, Latina, and Acción, and the Yale community, and the media. Uh, And we were off and running from that point.
1: And what was your original assessment of the case?
0: Well, it was a little bit confusing because my client indicated that he was told by representatives of the university that he would not be prosecuted. And in fact, he'd had a previous court appearance. It told the judge the same thing. Judge told him come back in two weeks with a lawyer.
1: So let's back up a little bit. This is what um, I know based on uh, the newspaper articles. Um, he uh, and uh, a community meeting at which he attended. When he talked to us a little bit about what happened, uh, he the backstory, as I understand it, is that he. Um, just had had enough one day when he saw the really um, humiliating and degrading uh, pink glass window image of two uh, slaves with big baskets of cotton on their head and they were in a cotton field. And so he climbed up on a chair and he knocked it down. Yes. And the glass shattered outside, but it did not actually harm anybody. No. No, Nor Was it possible for the glass to to have harmed anybody because of the location? And I want you to explain a little bit about that later. But then... Um, he was arrested, Yale police arrested him, and he was charged with a misdemeanor and a well, felony and he, he was He wasn't fired. arrested
0: initially, there okay. were two Yale police showed up. By way of background, mm-hmm. Mr. Menifee worked eight years at Yale prior to that point, uh, had every reason to like his job, felt he was well compensated, liked his co-workers, and it had been at a Yale reunion in June where a Yale alum who had his daughter with him, pointed the windows out to Mr. Menifee. Mr. Menifee needs glasses. Mm-hmm. So these windows are very small. They're the size of a tablet, and they're up high. And the man said to him, it must really grate on you every day to have to come to work and look at that, because it certainly bothered me, and it's bothered a lot of people for a long time. And that's when Mr. Menifee, it was pointed out to him what the uh, stained-glass windows portrayed. Mm-hmm. From that point on, I think just in his subconscious it grated on him until one day he just said, I just felt it had to go.
1: And he knocked it down. Now talk to us a little bit about the, the initial reaction. So the Yale police came. They did not initially arrest him. But no, what two led officers, to the arrest? Two
0: officers on the scene said, I guess we'll have to give you a ticket because there's there's all kinds of vandalism goes on at a university. Mm-hmm. And mostly it does not result in any criminal action whatsoever, whether it's a worker or a student. Uh, So they said, well, you might have to make restitution, and that might have, you know, been about $2,500, whatever. He was prepared to accept whatever. It was a third officer who came on the scene and escalated matters and uh, actually wanted him taken out in handcuffs, even though he was not violent, not resisting, Arrest not argumentative in any way, according to all of the witnesses and the incident report. Uh, the union rep, Taisha Walker, did prevail upon the officer not to put handcuffs on him while he was on the Yale premises. But he was, once he was off the premises, he was put in a, a New Haven police car and he was handcuffed. Now, was it a New Haven police car or a Yale police car? Um, I think he was transferred. To, to, uh, from Yale to New Haven at some point. I'm not sure okay. whose police car, but he was put in handcuffs. And charged with? He was charged with two crimes. One was a reckless endangerment, and the other was the equivalent of vandalism, but it was uh, criminal mischief.
1: Okay. So here you are. You come out of a courtroom. Um, you're greeted by community activists. Corey is embraced by the community. Um, And, uh, you know, within a matter of hours after the New Haven Independent article broke, it seemed like the rest of the world started paying attention to what was going on in New Haven. And all of a sudden you find yourself a lawyer in private practice uh, representing a client uh, whose case is the subject of international attention. It was completely unforeseeable, but yes, the
0: Independent article and Combination of community activism uh, caused the whole thing to take off.
1: And what was your original assessment? And and what was it that you know you had you 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 know he uh, Mr. Menefee agrees to your representation. Uh, what were you What were you thinking about in terms of his representation? What was most critical? Well, I thought we could probably get rid of the criminal charges. They were
0: very low level. They seemed mm-hmm. excessive for what had happened. Uh, the other issue was his employment, and I really hadn't had time that at that first court appearance that I was with him for, to know what his goals were, but he pretty quickly told me he did want his job back. And frankly, I thought that was a real long shot.
1: Um, from the outset, and you talked uh, about this a little bit earlier, there are a few organizations that reached out to you, uh, Unida Latina en Acción and the Center for Community Change, which is the organization where I work. Um, and I remember um, we learned about this case um, before he was to appear in court. And so we started uh, our organizing efforts in earnest way, way before the story broke. But I remember sending you an email. I'd never heard of you before. And um, uh, I think the email identified who I was, who I worked with, and what our efforts were. And uh, suggested some level of collaboration or at least information uh, sharing in terms of what we were planning to do to make sure that there was no conflict between our efforts and what you were desiring of your client. And one of the things that I was really struck by was I just braced myself. I thought, she's a lawyer in private practice. I'm not expecting a, um, what I was bracing myself for was a cold or hostile reception like I can handle this. Thank yes, you very much away. for your help. Yes, you yeah, activists, yeah, yeah. you troublemakers. Yeah. Your your input or your participation is going to be problematic instead of beneficial. And um, your response was exactly the opposite of what I expected. Unlike you know, and I'm a lawyer myself. I used to represent people, so I'm very aware of the benefits uh, and the detriment of working with community organizers. But you were um, very welcoming and um, and. You know from from that original email it felt like we just established a close level of collaboration yes. that I think um, was really beneficial uh, to to Corey and his case. why, oh, why that Patricia? I mean why what, what is your philosophy and, and what as a lawyer um, led you to a response that is unexpected from lawyers in private practice?
0: Well, I think probably as a child of the 60s, having been used to a lot of political activism and having done things during my professional career that involved some community activism, um, I saw this as a bigger issue. I did see this as an act of civil disobedience. So the other thing is uh, I've never limited myself to just what the law says. I think there are Many tools one can use, public opinion being a very powerful one. And the thing I love about New Haven is the level of civic involvement that's here. So when you have groups showing up, including Yale faculty and students and alums, saying we want to help, I mean, why would you turn anyone away? And in the end, I do believe that this broad coalition of community support persuaded Yale to change its position. I think Yale overreacted to begin with. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I was not there. Um, I think they took too long to reverse their position. But I, I really do feel, you know, when you have your client is on Democracy Now with Amy Goodman and the press from literally all over the world is covering this news item, that's a lot of pressure on an institution.
1: And that plus the fact that your client, um, Mr. Menifee, is an incredibly eloquent spokesperson. Yes, he is.
0: Um, People didn't expect that someone who worked in the dining hall would have a college degree. Mm -hmm. But he actually has a degree in mass communications. He worked as a reporter while he was a college student. He sacrificed. um, One day, if you talk with him, how he got through college is quite an amazing story. This is a man who's been through a lot. He's been through the fire and come through in one piece. So he was not just someone who one day blew his stack and decided to break a window. He knew the history of slavery. He knew United States history. And as a thoughtful person to go in every day, and as he said in one of his interviews, it's 2016, why do I have to go to work and see these images that remind me of very painful History for Black people.
1: Do you think he would have been um, arrested and charged with a felony if he were either white, a faculty member, or and or a faculty member or a student? In uh, other words, wh- what I'm trying to get at is is the 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 scuttlebutt, a word on the street, is that. Part of the reason he was arrested and charged with a felony is because he is a custodial, a black custodial worker at a prestigious institution that does not have the level of respect for its workers of color uh, as it should. Well, I think
0: people who do these service jobs generally don't have the status, let's say, of a professor. And I do think uh, we know law enforcement overreacts when people of color are involved. That's been well documented. I mean, from stopping people on the highways to stop and frisk on the sidewalks, it's, um, this is generally how white culture has responded to people of color. And I think it stems from their own guilt that they project a
1: level of violence they know they're somewhat
0: responsible for.
1: Um, You are listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio, broadcast at 103.5 FM and live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Talk to us about the engagement and the notes and the emails and the calls that you received from alum, concerned faculty, um, supporters of the university or Mr. Menifee's case, because I think that is one of the... uh, untold stories behind Mr. Menifee's case.
0: Well, it was truly stunning. I mean, you, of course, were one of the first, and the NHI and its coverage was right there every day. But I got calls from Yale alum from all over the country, one of whom said to me, I represent 200 Yale alums. We are outraged at how this man has been treated. People have wanted to get rid of those windows for 30 years, and we're thrilled that someone finally took action because... The university didn't. Jenny Lamette was another person who reached out immediately. Tell me who Jenny Lamette is. She is the granddaughter of Lena Horn, And her mother uh, is a writer, has written The Black Calhouns, which I'm halfway through right now. And Jenny offered whatever help was needed. And I said, well, my client could use a laptop because he didn't even have a phone the day I met him. And communications, you know, we needed some way of keeping in touch. So she donated a laptop computer, and a lot of support. She said, "You know, he doesn't have to become a symbol. He doesn't have to do anything more than is right for him." Um, so, so many people popped up. Uh, Bianca, uh, uh, I want to get her name. Vivian, uh, I'm trying to think of the last name. Well, Bianca is the one who set up a GoFundMe account that has raised over twenty-five thousand dollars. And thank heavens she did this because basically he was out in, without an income for six weeks. Had he, by the way, paid the $2,500 restitution, he would have come out ahead. Had Yale said, okay, you broke it, here's the value, um, he would have come out ahead. But instead, he was six weeks without the ability to support his family. So he cleaned out his retirement account to prepay his rent. He borrowed money. Uh, He literally didn't own a good suit, and because this took off, I knew he's going on television. He needs to have a proper appearance because, as I explained to him, when people don't know you, they do make judgments in how you looked. And you see his early pictures where he's there in a white undershirt, and he looks like he works in the cafeteria. You see him the day we left court when it was all over, and he's got a good suit on. That did so much for his confidence, too, in presenting himself in telling his story. People realized, you know, when we take the time to know a person, there's a lot more than meets the eye. But so often we're rushed and we don't have that time.
1: And I do want to encourage those of you who have not looked at the GoFundMe account to read some of the uh, statements of support that donors made. Um, They were really inspiring. Uh, Nine pages of comments directed at Mr. Menifee and supporting his Courageous efforts.
0: Bianca Brooks, by the way, is a student at Columbia. That's right. I've never met her. I have spoken with her. People at at Yale vouched for her. We made sure she was legitimate. And all the funds will be accounted for. They've gone into my trust account, and I'm making sure we take care of the most pressing needs Mr. Menefee has first.
1: So as a result of your hard work and your advocacy, the charges against Corey Menefee were dropped, and he was hired back at Yale, but with one uh, unexpected and shocking caveat, and that's that he was never to speak ever about this case again. Patricia, were you surprised by that? No. It had been, it had
0: been brought up before, and I know I would never be a party to something like that. I just feel it's so violative of everything you know the whole point of a democracy is we need to know things so we can make intelligent decisions including voting so anytime you have secrecy you don't really know what the trade-offs were so yale had published its acceptance that he could rescind his uh resignation and he could start work on monday without any conversation with me telling me that was coming very unusual this was completely non-standard I had reached out to Yale more than once, spoken with counsel, and said, Let's sit face to face. We can work this out. I would like to, I'm a trained mediator. I like for everyone to come out happy. Mm -hmm. They chose to do this unilateral move. And so the logical thing was to accept it. But then they submitted a list of demands. And at that point, Mr. Menefee was torn between the union representation and his private counsel. And I said to him, I will never get in your way. Let me withdraw from representing you on the employment matter. You do whatever you have to through the union, but I will still represent you on the criminal. So he did sign an agreement through the union that I never would have
1: participated in. But
0: that was basically the only way he could really get his job back.
1: Do you think a university has a special responsibility to... um around issues of academic expression and free speech. I mean, one of the ironies of this case is the idea of an elite, prestigious, uh, highly respected university imposing a gag order on one of its workers for taking a position, a strong position on an issue that I think most of us would characterize as a racial justice um, and social justice issue. I
0: really don't understand their thinking, but people have written, you know, if you even, as Mr. Menifee would say, look at their motto, looks at Veritas, which he understands to be true through enlightenment. Where is the truth in this? People didn't know the whole picture of how he got his job back. And yet Yale wanted to portray itself as, you know, we've done this grand gesture uh, after first telling him we wouldn't prosecute. Well, we did. Bring charges, but then we withdrew the charges. I mean, there was really nothing noble in what they did. But to keep the the whole truth away from people is totally contrary to what educational institutions are supposed to be about. You're supposed to seek the truth, the entire truth, not a partial truth, not a public relations truth, uh, not a soundbite, but the whole truth. All I can say is what I discovered while representing Mr. Menefee, is there is a huge disconnect between the Yale, uh, what do we call it, management, and the extended Yale community. The alums, the professors, the students, overwhelmingly were in Mr. Menefee's corner, saying this whole institution, this building only went up in the 1930s. People right. think it's, you know, back to the 1700s. Mm-hmm. It's not. So why was this monument to slavery named after... one of the biggest proponents of slavery. I mean, the man actually agitated to change laws so that slaves couldn't be freed. This is John C. Calhoun. John C. Calhoun Mm -hmm. kept him in servitude forever. And an architect of secession. Why name a building after him? Why put these offensive... uh, The other stained-glass windows, by the way, one they partially covered up or removed, showed John C. Calhoun with his boot on the neck
1: of a slave. I mean, this is over the top. So let me ask you, uh, uh, while we're on the topic of Calhoun College, um, you know, the, the Corey Manafis case uh, did something that to me was very unusual uh, in the 15 years that I've been in New Haven, and that is that it brought the Yale and New Haven community together. And a lot of the community organizing efforts that we engaged in and which you were a part of really were a beautiful combination of community residents Mm -hmm. and Yale students and Yale faculty who came together for two reasons. One, to support Mr. Mr. Menefee because uh, they recognized that this was a grave injustice, but also because everybody who who got involved also uh, has very strong feelings about Calhoun College um, and feel that the university should go about the business of removing John Calhoun's name from the college and from, from the city. Uh, and, uh, you know, recall that after months and months, of, and this is something that students have been agitating for over the last several years. And before Mr. Menifee, the, uh, there was a process, internal process at Yale, and after months and months of, of discussion and engagement, Uh, The president of the university, Peter Salovey, announced that Calhoun College would retain its name. Um, But then Corey Manafee happens, his case happens. There is a huge uh, outpouring of support both in New Haven and around the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Uh, And the issue of the renaming of the Calhoun College surfaces again, but this time with the engagement of the community. And a few days ago, Um, you know, a week after we had the last rally or less than a week after we had the last community rally, uh, Peter Salovey sent a statement announcing the creation of a committee that would come up with some criteria to determine when the university would change a building's name and and what the process would be for removing uh, images that that are uh, offensive and racist. Do you think that's a cop-out on Peter Salovey's part? And if you were him, what would you have done? Well, I don't,
0: I don't even have to take his place. What would Kingman Brewster have done? He would have changed the name. You know, we have had presidents of Yale University who had a clear moral compass, who didn't require a committee or an extensive process, but uh, apparently Yale now is run by committee, uh, and this is how they choose to do things. These are, these are not difficult issues. I think what's difficult is Yale has changed. The population of Yale has changed. It includes people of color, and they bring their knowledge of history and their sensibilities with them. And they can't get the older white male establishment to understand. And I'm sure the people who, you know, are moving so slowly think that they're doing everything possible and they're being completely reasonable But they are a different generation and a different sensibility. The world has changed. And I saw in some of the comments, for instance, in the local newspapers, people um, accusing Yale of being politically correct and, you know, somehow pandering now to other sensibilities. It is a different world. And what they call being politically correct, I call being sensitive to others, being sensitive to their feelings. You have to listen to people. You can't tell someone what they're feeling. If I'm a Native American and I find some uh, Indian logo offensive because I know my people were wiped out, Mm -hmm. you have to listen to me. That's, That's how we survive in a diverse nation. We have people from all over. I mean, look at this Muslim family that lost a son and how their heart touched our heart. That's when people connect. That's when they get the simple truth of, Oh, that's what it feels like for someone else. Mr. Menefee touched people's hearts. It broke through all kinds of committees and studies and options, and it was a very simple act. Of this pains me, and this is what I've done. By the way, he has never uh, denied responsibility for what he's done. If anything, he said I had no right to destroy someone else's property. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the outpouring of support shows that it's long past the time when Yale should have taken action.
1: What was noti- noticeable was that he took responsibility from the very beginning, and he talked about loving his job and getting yeah. his job back. In. And Yale, he loves the students there. There's a lot of interaction. I've read things from
0: students who knew him. This mm-hmm. is a man, he, he interacts, and a lot of the workers there interact with the students. They become somewhat surrogate family at times.
1: There were a few students during the first rally we had that were from Calhoun College, and I remember one of them spoke up at the rally that we had, and she talked about how he has impacted her life in a positive way while she's been at Calhoun College. Uh, You are listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's Home for Community Radio, broadcast at 103.5 FM and live-streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Uh, Patricia, I want to pivot now from talking about Corey Menefee and Calhoun College to talking a little bit about you. I detect a bit of a Boston accent there. (laughs) I apologize. No need to apologize. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Are you from Boston? I grew up in the Dorchester section
0: of Boston. and It took me a lot of time to even learn how to pronounce Dorchester. The the Dorchester accent is uh, a little bit unusual. But yes, I'm a product of Boston, Boston Public Schools, Simmons College. And how
1: did you end up in Connecticut?
0: Uh, By way of New York, first, I went to law school in Brooklyn when I lived there and moved to Connecticut right after law school because I was married with children. And New York was still a tough place to live at that time. We were in Park Slope, and it was Brooklyn, a a different Park Park Slope. Yeah, right, at Prospect Park West. But uh, Connecticut beckoned. It just seemed pretty civilized place to, to uh, set up a practice and raise a family. And um, why did you go to law school? Well, I, again, it was the 60s. And what lawyers were doing at that time was they were really activists, particularly in the South. And I saw law as a lever that could literally move the earth. Mm-hmm. It was a tool to, uh, to accomplish change. So I never had a vision of, you know, a conventional law practice. I always saw it as a combination of, yes, I will have to pay my bills and earn a living, but what can we do along the way that makes a difference?
1: You talked, uh, you've mentioned a few times being a child of the 60s. What, um, how did that impact who you are today? I mean, you, you have a, a, a very sharp political analysis and a very sharp racial analysis um, and I'm just curious to know, you know, it, it's always fascinating to talk to people about the 60s and a few people that I have uh, spoken with, like in 1968, to what's happening now in this country, in this day and age, in terms of just the social, the sharp social divisions um, and the levels of violence uh, that are tearing parts of our community apart. So I'm curious to know what the 60s meant for you and how the 60s shaped who you are today. Well, a lot of the 60s was actually
0: productive. We saw huge changes in civil rights laws. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, we got bogged down in Vietnam and lost our way. Mostly the assassination of so many leaders. I mean, Malcolm X came to my college. So I saw the man and heard his story up front. And that has to change you. Bonnie Frank was a law school student. He came to my college. But in addition, we went to Washington numerous times. I slept on church floors, and we learned to protest peacefully. The Quakers were the ones who did the training in those days. I mean, it was there when Martin Luther King spoke and gave his I Have a Dream
1: speech. You were actually in Washington in the mall?
0: It's an amazing experience when you have hundreds of thousands of people of every age, ethnicity, background there, in support of something positive, a vision of a country that treats its citizens equally.
1: What was it like for you to be there at the, at what is you know one of the most iconic moments in, in modern-day you know well, we civil rights it was history. history? We knew it was history. So when you heard his speech, you knew straight away? Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, he was a well-known person mm-hmm. at that point anyhow. But we were outraged by the bombings, you know, the little girls that died in the church. Yep. And to see... Dog set upon American citizens. See, that's what we saw. We In the North, we saw these are American citizens. How can this happen? Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with this. People like Bella Absick yeah. left New York City. She was a young lawyer in those days, went south. People put their lives on the line. I didn't do anything that dramatic. I was one of the people, I like to think, you bear witness doesn't mean that showing up changes anything. You bear witness that this is right or this is wrong and that has value. But we also had numbers. We had critical mass. Now, Mr. Menifee's event, as you know, took place at a time when we watched unarmed black men being shot by police.
1: In Minnesota. And we have not had one
0: yeah. successful prosecution. Mm-hmm. We've Sandra Bland died yeah. in prison. I mean once again I look at this and I say these are American citizens how can this be happening
1: And it's no no geographical specificity Minnesota Louisiana All New York Ohio yeah.
0: yeah and and it's wrong and how do we change it Now I think some of it has to do with 911 and the militarization of our civilian police force but unless people show up and say this is wrong nothing changes hmm.
1: You you said earlier that you saw uh, law as a tool for social change. Uh, And you've been a lawyer now for... Over 40 years. What is your assessment of the... Looking back at your idealism when you graduated from law school and the reasons why you went to law school, and now after 40 years of practice, is the law an effective tool for social change? I don't think it's the
0: only tool. Mm-hmm. It, it, given the right case or circumstances, it can be. But no, it's not exclusively the only tool in the box. I mean, I think social activism combined with law can be pretty powerful. And when you get the media in there, that's a lot of it. It's a way of educating people. Um, one of the Supreme Court justices was marveling at how the gay community had made so much progress in such a short period of time. But I think the media was key to that. My friends were watching programs showing gay people as people with all of life's challenges, Mm -hmm. not as others that were unknown and despised. And And that goes a long way. Once you know someone, it's like, well, of course they should be able to marry and adopt children and just have the full rights of citizenship.
1: And if you talk to some um, long-time LGBTQ activists, what they'll say to you is that it actually took decades and decades of hard work and advocacy, Um, but then the dominoes toppled. The last set of dominoes uh, toppled really uh, uh, pretty quickly. And you achieve that critical mass
0: when a lot of people have the information. And I saw my sons growing up, and who did they want to emulate but black athletes Uh, personalities, music. They didn't know there were white kids in Fairfield County suburb. It was like this was their culture. They bought
1: into it and I thought this is going to be a big change when they're in place. Mm. Now you live in New Haven now. New Haven, Connecticut. What um, do you like most about New Haven? Well, the cultural background is phenomenal. I mean,
0: largely thanks to Yale, we have free concerts, museums, beautiful things like that. I love the green. Mostly I like the level of civic involvement, that this is a diversity that uh, that I'm familiar with. The area where I grew up in Boston was diverse, and I've always gravitated towards different kinds of cultures. I've studied different languages for that reason. I find it invigorating, exciting. and uh, So New Haven is a small city, and yet it's a very sophisticated and very vibrant place. There aren't too many places that have this level of activity. Fairfield County is rather corporate, and there there are people trying to accomplish things there, but not in the level that happens in New Haven. New Haven really is preeminent,
1: in my mind, in the whole state of Connecticut. And what do you think are the city's uh, biggest challenges? I mean, you have an array of clients who I think uh, represent a cross-section of, of the city.
0: Well, having lived in different neighborhoods here, I got to know people in the black community who had great skills, had worked hard. I mean, I'd, I'd known them in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. in Bedford-Stuyvesant, and in Brownsville as well. But the need for jobs here, Yale is the single biggest employer, Yale in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And those are largely um, either service jobs or white-collar jobs. There's not enough here to support a decent middle class. Um, I think the other issue is I don't think any town thrives with one party dominating forever. So that concerns me. Uh, I have heard that at different times there have been green party people who have held office, but that has not uh, taken root here. So there are a lot of challenges for New Haven, but I I would say Yale is such a wealthy, it's it's as wealthy as a small country now with a $26 billion endowment. Mm -hmm. And I see it with all its security systems on campus and stuff. Students hate it, by the way, but it's, it's like a castle. It's castle where the, the serfs are living outside the castle and they're living in a different place from the people in the castle. And that's not healthy. And I know Yale does things. I know the students are wonderful. They're in all kinds of programs. But I really believe we have to tax our wealthy nonprofits, that they've accumulated too much wealth. They now control what goes on in the legislature, not just in Connecticut, but in a lot of places. We can't afford them. The middle class is going broke. People can't afford taxes on their homes. They're taxed on their cars. I mean, even the price of parking on the street, everything has to support government while these billionaire nonprofit entities sit and just accumulate more wealth,
1: would you ever run for office?
0: I have in the past and
1: I failed. <laughs> um, would you do it again?
0: I don't know. I would have to, I would certainly support someone I thought was a good candidate.
1: Uh, you're listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio, broadcast at 103.5 FM and live-streamed at newhavenindependent.org. So we're coming to the end of the show, but I always ask my um, guests to answer a few specific questions. Uh, Who are your New Haven sheroes or heroes? Do you have any?
0: Well, Wendy Hamilton, I'd have to put her up there. Wendy uh, wrote a check for $100,000 to fund a breakfast program at one of the local churches. Plus she's donated. I mean, she's given away close to a million dollars this year. Um, I like Barbara Fair. I think she's a great voice mm-hmm. and she takes a lot of flack, but she shows up. I like Gary Winfield. I think he's another one who shows up and be counted on. Reverend Samuel Ross Lee is one of the smartest people I've ever met anywhere. Uh, I wish he would run for office. Let's see, who else? Of course, you, Kika. You and Henry are a model of what you'd want in Citizens. And of course,
1: your son, too.
0: Little Henry. He, he will be mayor, if not president, one day, I'm sure.
1: Modern Sally's or Peppies when it comes to pizza?
0: Oh, I don't eat much <laughs>
1: pizza. It, to me, pizza
0: is pizza. I'm sorry, I'm not Do you have a favorite restaurant then, in New Haven? No, it changes from week to week. I keep exploring. I keep going to new places.
1: Fair enough. Uh, What's your favorite New Haven neighborhood, if you have one? Uh, Right now, I would say Grand
0: Avenue in Haven. I love the energy of the people who are there. I love the combination of the history near the waterfront and and just the exuberance of of what's going on. People taking their life
1: into their hands and doing well. If you could pick a superhero power, what would it be? Superhero. I never thought about that. That's why I ask these questions. It brings out an entirely different side of people. Yeah. Superhero. X-ray vision, the ability to fly, the ability to read people's minds. Is there something that you would find? I guess the ability to persuade people. That's pretty powerful. Power of persuasion. I uh, Thank you for joining us today on Kika's Corner and a big thanks to today's fabulous guest, uh, Patricia Kane. Until next month, here is wishing you justice, solidarity and many days of sunshine.